It's the Occult Mystery Podcast, where we talk about the mysteries hidden behind Mickey. Welcome to the Occult Disney Podcast. It's where we look for the magic inside the mysteries of the mouse, but not the mouse you're thinking of. These are different mice today. It's the rescuers. Hi, this is Matt here. Over there is Thomas. He's a paranoid American. What's up? Today I'm going to be going as Percival C. McLeach. Okay, Percival. That sounds good. I can, yeah, that'd be nice. You just use a different name for every single podcast, and <laughs> you, ha- you have a personality and a presence people recognize, but no one can ever find you. <laughs> That's true. I like that. <laughs> uh, today's flick is The Rescuers, which I have no clue if I've watched this before. Um, I know for a fact that I watched this one many, many, many times, but. I didn't remember almost any of it. I remember John Candy's voice and like there was a a few scenes that I caught myself watching that felt like I was watching something I'd never seen before, but I could recite the dialogue like word for word. It was like a weird, like, you know, I was, I was MK ultra triggered at some point and just started reciting the script for this movie, which, which kind of freaked me out to be honest. I don't think we get your candy till the second one, but uh, yeah. This one's the bot. Yeah, this one's got well, both of them have Bob Newhart, which is a little bit weird. Um, but one of the reasons I was saying I, I wasn't sure if I've seen this is when I was a kid, I had like this little weird, you know, plastic hand crank thing where you put a cartridge in and watch 30 seconds of something silent. And I remember we had like three or four of those for the rescuers, like the uh, albatross landing and stuff. So I'm like, mm-hmm. I don't know if I've actually seen the movie or just seen these like early 80s kids toy you know film clips <laughs> um so, i mean those I, I definitely remember like with the albatross you know running him forward then running him backward and you know like why he's landing now he's now he's flying away backwards so that that was fun for me at the time yeah <laughs> when you're three years old that's great <laughs> um i guess this one gets into some weird territory even for this is like what people accuse disney of now sometimes right (laughs) like the rescuers we have all this weird like you know kids off the radar being kidnapped and like trafficked or whatever i'm like that's kind of raw stuff (laughs) watching it today (laughs) and you know what's funny too is that this movie originally got buried because uh, of the political undertones quote unquote that walt disney saw in the movie um but i think it was probably a combination of the like ecological point of view where it's you know they're they're sending these animals and they're becoming extinct and they're tearing up the environment it had like a fern gully almost feel to it at a certain level and i think that he sort of pushed back against that but now in context of all of this that's come over the last half decade yeah maybe or you know half century maybe that was the other part of the political undertones he didn't want to like reveal the epsteins of the 19 you know 70s not like the Sex Pistols. You've seen those clips, yeah. <laughs> I haven't. No. What? What are the Sex Pistols clips? Oh, Johnny Rotten. I, I, 
maybe the interview was like published later, but it was something like um, well, 1977, they just went on and uh, cursed up a storm on the BBC. That was fun. And then I think it was 79 where um, Johnny Rotten, John Lennon was was actually outing Jimmy Savile like in 1979. Like, oh, yeah, that, you know, that nonce at the BBC. We all know what he's up to, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and then the interview was like, I think that one was buried for quite a while. But yeah, so, you know. Thumbs up Is, now was that Rotten. was that like like a prophecy or like did he actually know that and he was revealing information or was that just him calling someone a nonce and then <laughs> happening to be right about it? No, the point was if you were at the BBC, everybody knew. You know, like it wasn't a secret within circles. It was just like the general public didn't mm. know. So um it was so it was yeah, it was an Epstein situation. Exactly. Yeah. So that's kind of where that went. So I guess I guess we can start a little bit lighter on this one. Um, well, I think I think that that already that ship has sailed a little bit. Okay, Sacre blue. <laughs> but but also speaking of, I guess you know, um, uh, I guess like inappropriate sexuality and and uh, the younger audience. This also stands out as like the defining movie where there's an actual you know, like a pornographic image inserted into the movie or it's very specific releases of the movie that was shown in a theater to children before I think the G rating even existed. So it kind of precluded any sort of ratings uh, in that kind of regard. But this is the one that actually happened. Almost every other Disney insertion can almost be explained away through a million different excuses and like the word in the Lion King might not have been SEX, it might have been SFX, which stood for the special effects department, and so on and so on, all the way down to the Little Mermaid things. But this one, this one with the woman in the window, is the one that is undisputed. And the and I just I feel like we need to start out on that because when it comes to occult Disney, and which literally just means things hidden in Disney, this is the one that you can point at and say this this is real. You know, this yeah, is that- objective reality. Yeah, I, I was almost going to start the podcast by just saying, okay, I call it. There's some boobies. Let's move on. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, I mean, we, we have to jump into this, man, because this this is the one that I think uh, sets the tone. Yeah, um, I think 1997 is the demarcation point. Like if uh, the original VHS or whatever and the theatrical releases had it and someone they finally caught it in 97. So I think DVD and Blu-ray and streaming, it has now been edited out. Um the, yeah, I, although, and I checked the version that I watched was like the remastered new version. So it definitely did not have it in there, of course. Yeah, I didn't have the time to look for that anyway. Although I, had, I believe I have looked for the Lion King bit before. because If he, if you know, it. see, that's another thing, too, is people are like, oh, well, um, even if you knew it was there, you wouldn't be able to see it unless you freeze framed it. That's not true. If you watch it at regular speed and you know what you're looking for, you 100 percent can see it for those two frames that it's in it just shows as like a little orange box when as it goes by but if you know what you're looking for and you know exactly where to look you could absolutely see it so that's a little bit of there's so many weird like myths baked into this um and just disney in general uh, again this this one's such a perfect entry point for all of that i mean i think way more problematic than like you know a, a quick burlesque shot is uh we see they animate a little bit too much of Penny several times. And I feel like it's the only time I've seen that in a Disney movie. Really? Yeah. I mean, they, there's shots where, you know, she's like going into her, her nightgown or being carried around. You're like, huh, they're showing an awful lot of a little girl there. 
which I thought that was weird. Well, I mean, even in the sequel, they kind of uh, they they sexualize these mice to uh, increasing degrees. And and again, this was another hidden another like hidden sort of thing. And it's an interesting theory that I came across. I don't give it any credit, but it's an interesting one enough to bring up is that Disney might have injected a little bit of this controversial sort of animation and stuff just to get another crowd boosting the sales specifically for a re-release of a movie that might not have been um you know a complete blockbuster when they released it theatrically when they re-release it and it's like oh but we had to take movies out all of a sudden that could be like another sort of incentive to get people to go out and buy what they think is now this like banned material and one of the the best examples of this maybe being somewhat truthful is the Roger Rabbit had like an un like a like a deleted scene where someone actually drew like one frame of Jessica Rabbit falling out of a car with her legs open and not wearing anything under it. I mean, it was just a flesh colored cell shaded, you know, like one by one centimeter inch area. But someone drew that and knew what they were drawing as they drew it and they put it in, but then took it back out, but then put it back in as a deleted scene, um, which feels like, you know, controversy created, like a manufactured controversy. I had just gotten to thinking, maybe I mentioned on here, because I, I even at, I was like 10 years old, but I still had a little stuff for Roger Rabbit around when that movie came out. I was like, I wonder how many boys were walking around with stuff to Jessica Rabbit's. I mean, they had to have made some. I don't know. <laughs> it was big. I mean, our, that was directed to me at that age when that movie came out. And I remember even the Nintendo game had a secret level where when you went to the club and Jessica Rabbit was on stage, if you looked under the table, then it would give you like an 800 number that you could call. And it would be Jessica Rabbit giving you tips about how to play the game and that you could give like dogs a steak to keep them away or something like that. Oh, that's exciting! Yeah, yeah, I do. It was remember. like it was like a very sexy voice too, of course, because it was just a rabbit. <laughs> yeah, it was just so you got these like little kids calling up to get Nintendo tips, getting talked to by a sultry vixen. Well, we got well here. We have Bianca as our as our sex pot rabbit, rabbit. Excuse me, um, <laughs> mouse. Um, like kind of a. I guess that's the what what the the boar thing or something i don't know because she just like really warms up to bernard like for no reason too quickly which that was weird and uh speaking of cartoon characters stripping i wrote my notes like right before they fly off on the albatross she seems to just strip for no reason then the next scene they're on the albatross and she's wearing clothes again i'm like what's happening <laughs> well I mean, it was like getting into like a limo uh going to like a nice place that's that's just accepted that you're going to take your clothes off first yeah yeah okay yeah yeah that makes sense those, those swinger clubs, right? And then got to do it there. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, so apparently she is Hungarian because of the actress. And uh, Bernard is kind of weird. How familiar are you with uh, Bob Newhart? I mean, I know who he is. I've obviously seen a lot of clips of him in, in the military. He's like a god. There's all sorts of like Bob Newport, Newhart halls and stuff. But I also know him from... Uh, the Mary Tyler Moore show, I believe, right? Wasn't he like the boss in that show? That might be right. I know the Bob Newhart show. He was a psychologist in the seventies, and in the eighties and nineties, he was. Uh, it was just whatever I know was was in a daze at Nick at night when it came on at like midnight yeah, yeah. when I was supposed to be doing homework. Yeah, yeah Bob Newhart might have been a spinoff show. I, I I can't remember. I I saw a lot more because of my age of uh, Newhart, where he was running a 
New England, you know, bed and breakfast or whatever. And uh, that has, I think that has the best series ending ever. Are you, are you familiar with the, the ending of that series? No, what's well? I spoiler alert for anyone yeah, yeah, who yeah. wants for to binge the whole thing. Thirty-year-old sitcom. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, I was. Uh, so he, uh, he's things are just going insane in his his uh, bed and breakfast or whatever, and then he just like wakes up in bed, um, sleeping next to his wife from the previous sitcom, like this the seventies. Oh no, I've, I've, I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm positive that I've seen that in a show recap where they show you know, all the most annoying endings <laughs> to TV shows. Honestly, I love that trope. It's one of my favorite ones. I know people think it's like the biggest cop out. I'm just a sucker for that. That one in Groundhog's Day. Tropes. Yeah, I just always find it like, oh, yeah, that seven or nine season show. It was all the entire show is just a dream. I love that. But you know what? It's it's if you got that much wrapped up, wrapped up in it and felt like that was a ripoff. But it actually was all fake. Like, no, of course, none of that happened. It happened <laughs> on a soundstage by, you know, writers and directors. And those cameras come off and people change their accents. And I know it's a funny thing to be upset over that the fake thing turned out to be more fake than when they were faking it. Yeah, like like the Seinfeld ending. It's like, one, it was a clip show when you think about it. So it was funny that they ended their series with a clip show. And two, um, it's like, they were just horrible people in the finale and they you know it's like well yeah they were the entire series did you not notice <laughs> that's the point of the show that these people are terrible <laughs> it was just about new yorkers period not even <laughs> terrible people just new yorkers in general right 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 really um getting back to this movie we had our characters i i definitely looking into the background like this actually was at one point, Disney's not Walt Disney's, but uh, you know, animators at Disney's concept of a 101 Dalmatian sequel. I mean, our our villainess is so close. Medusa is so close to Cruella Deville. She's kind of just like a a dumpy version of Cruella Deville that's been eating too much cake and drinking too much scotch. You know, <laughs> there's also a weird evolution where even the hairstyle here. Um, I I personally believe it turns into oh man what's what's the name of the big octopus lady and the little mermaid? Um, it's it sort of morphs into her at least some of the mannerisms and I I really feel that Disney all the way back to um Fantasia when they they bring out sort of the black god right I think that they've been developing the same villain so every time we see a new Disney movie that's the villain it all comes from the the black god uh of you know the, the that like faustian tale that they show you but it just kind of like morphs in different ways so in one movie it's cruella de um and it just and it keeps evolving it turns into um maleficent with the same kind of silhouette we've brought up a few different times but even the the hairstyle of the villain of this movie it has the horns right like i, I don't know i i really do feel that it's they keep like developing this this like a uh, evil entity and they just keep kind of like shaping its body for all the movies, but it's the same kind of uh, that like evil trope. I think yeah, they're like, they're the, manifesting it. That's the, the Fantasia spell casting at Chernobog, which Chernobog has to keep showing up in some form. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, the, I, yeah. Call him the black God. Cause that's what the, the name translates to. Yeah. Yeah. So, Oh, okay. We're going for, that's cool. Chernobog, yeah, never, yeah. yeah. No, no, I got it now. Um, uh, Ursula. It took, I, I literally Ursula, sat there. there I literally sat there thinking about it for like a minute because I was like, all I could think you hear Medusa and you just can't like think of Ursula now, but it comes back to your point. It's kind of the same sort of template, right? 
They, I mean, they they make a purple and fat, and they put her underwater. But it's kind of the same ish character, and and I don't even know if it's necessarily because of like a lack of creativity. I really do think that they're improving and working and just constantly molding the same character. It's almost like they keep casting. You know how Disney loved to cast the same voice actors over and over for different sort of characters because um, they brought all this personality with them. I think it's kind of like that, but it's it's a fictional character that they've kind of created in this ethereal space, and they just keep casting her over and over again. Well, I mean, it's kind of like how you could argue a lot of the Disney princesses are basically the same character, right? I mean, right, that's, yeah, the, the that, damsel in distress ones, at least. Yeah, exactly. I mean, in recent years, I guess that's the whole point of like um, Twisted and such is to maybe break her out of that role a little bit, but uh. It is, yeah. In yeah. effect, they create yet another one, which is the one that keeps breaking out of the role, right? It's always like <laughs> that same archetype where they just keep recasting it into different roles. I don't know. I think I think it's so interesting to kind of because, for example, they were remaking the Little Mermaid without going on a complete tangent, but that Little Mermaid is probably going to be the new archetype of the character that breaks all the roles, whereas the old archetype was the recasted actress you know, ethereal actress that was always kind of in distress and always needed a man to get them out of whatever kind of conundrum they were in, or they were always chasing a relationship to make them whole. Whereas the new archetype, it's kind of a split from that. It's always like, well, I can be dependent, independent, um, which like neither of them are good or bad, but it's literally just them casting the same, you know, character over and over again and dressing it up slightly differently. Although break it up here, yeah, the the villainess is like almost disturbingly in the archetype, like just like your two shades from Cruella, like. But the heroes in this movie are a little bit. I think they break the mold a little bit, uh, partly because I guess they're kind of sort of half based on their uh, famous voice actors. Like it's def they have a different vibe. I mean. I just watched well, uh, Bernard is is the most unwitting, I think, so far of a lot of the the sort of protagonists of the Disney movies. He's the he's the one that's most doesn't even want to be there, kind of is like being led around on his adventure there. Bianca's a little bit more gung ho about it. Right. And he's kind of along for the ride in, in some ways. But all of the other Disney movies so far it's like either they were thrust in that world because their parents died, which is the other recurring theme aside from children being kidnapped. <laughs> um, but, I, but I think that that's kind of part of what makes this movie unique in that way. One of the, by, by one of those serendipitous synchronicity sort of things is um, the week before this one from, for my other film podcast, uh, I just watched North by Northwest twice actually. Cause then I watched it with my family. That's kind it starts at the UN it's got the unwitting hero, Cary Grant, you know, um, is it, that's Ava Marie saying in that one. Yeah, she's she's the actual spy kind of dragging him haplessly along. And I'm that's like, a, that's a great analogy, actually. man. Like when you explained <laughs> the way you explained, I was about to like try and work it out. And I was like, you're just explaining North by Northwest. So. <laughs> you're absolutely right, man. North the rescuers is just an animated version of North by Northwest. That, that's perfect. With some more swamp juice. Yeah. <laughs> I, I definitely guess I prefer cornfields and Mount Rushmore for action uh, compared to, you know, down in the bayou. But uh, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that's. So I don't know. There's something about I think I'd have a good time in New Orleans, but the, the general bayou vibe is not my favorite. So 
Uh, unless Kermit well, that's Frog's definitely there. not the same thing. Those those two things are not the same. <laughs> yeah, they're next to each other, but yeah, yeah, they're definitely not the same thing. So, <laughs> uh, the music in this movie, I, I, we got to talk about that a little bit. You know, as we're flying to the sounds of the '70s album-oriented radio soft rock. You know, <laughs> how how do you think about that fit? I kind of like the, I mean, what I've read as unorthodox. So that's definitely a way to describe part of the soundtrack. I think it gave it like a unique character, but it's definitely not something that I would be putting on to just like listen in the background. No, I I feel like there's kind of the 70s virus. Um, This one having a little bit of it. The worst offender being the science fiction movie Silent Running, where you have Brewster murdering his crewmates and uh, flying off alone kind of. Kind of dark, although he has cute robots, right? And that's not a spoiler. That's the first like 30 minutes of the movie. <laughs> but then it's got all these like Joan Baez songs. It's like, what's happening? <laughs> You're looking at a space station around and hearing Joan Baez. It's like, this doesn't fit. So there's something in the 70s where they just really wanted to shoehorn, you know, that stuff into movies. Like, I think I'd what? be more likely to just listen to it than have it on my soundtrack, you know? <laughs> I also feel that the the Rescue Aid Society song from this movie, they were trying to almost make like a UN theme song. It would have been creepier for the UN to come out with a sing-along. <laughs> but, it, but I feel like there's probably someone in Disney that was like, hey, man, if this Rescue Aid Society thing really catches on, like we can make the UN song. But I don't think it ever just caught on the same way that they maybe wanted it to. Yeah. Uh, the other music note I made here is some of the um, play setting music, especially when we're getting to the the villains or about to start our um, you know adventurous climax of the movie or whatever. Is uh, there's a few bits of music that sound like Kunden, like the you know the Philip Glass score from Kunden, which is supposed to be kind of like you know, the the Tibetan metaphysical vibe thing and i was like that's an interesting take for something in 1977 just kind of you know i that threw me off i liked it it was the end of the psychedelic era man people still had the the leftover instruments and the leftover drugs so i think everyone was getting every other last sort of hurrah out of their system before the 80s took hold and it was all just synthesizer music Oh, I could do that now. I, I get the ukulele and an analog synthesizer, some bongos. I, yeah, I could have a blast. <laughs> <laughs> I do have a blast <laughs> pretty often. This was a, an interesting note that I found, too, when I was looking up the notes of this movie, is that some of the sound effects were reused um, from Fox and the Hound, where I guess the grizzly bear makes the exact same growling noise as uh, Brutus and Nero do in this one. Oh, you got you got to flip the script though. It's here first. This one's seventy-seven. That oh, that, yeah. 80. Either, either way, either way. Yeah. The the other point being when we did because we did Fox and the Hound what like four months ago, <laughs> so it feels like it was earlier. Um, but we talked about that one how it was kind of a transition film where the the animation studio was kind of breaking down, right? Whereas this one seemed to be a uh, more of a a better oiled handoff i guess because this is the last one where we have like a lot of the the nine old men and and where we are getting the new animators i think they had like uh, an actual kind of program to you know you could audition to be one of the new animators and they ended up with something like 25 new animators which started working on here um keep in mind this is the 
it had been a long time since Disney had put out a feature length animated film when they put out the rescuers. Uh, the one before this is Robin Hood, which is like four years earlier, five years earlier, something like that. So uh, there was quite a long work, um, a lot of work put in this movie, I guess, because they've been just were working on it for four years. I mean, how did you feel it held up to? Well, actually, what's your favorite one so far out of all the ones we've watched? Like out of all the Disney movies? Out of all the ones we've watched so far up to this point. I mean, I'm gonna, I, I, I still think i gotta in the end i'm gonna stick with dumbo but i'm trying to think of which one like has like really gone up in my book um oh the sword in the stone no it wasn't the sword in the stone um, <laughs> probably yeah, that one I, fell I, down a couple points for me <laughs> i guess the one that i ended up preferring geez no mobile you can say it uh, it could be the no mobile i don't know yeah, Fox and the Hound is up there. I, I should probably look at the list to uh, really work it out. Um, it's sort of my brain shatter on the question today. So, <laughs> well, well I'm, I guess I'm curious if if uh, Fox and the Hound is your ten, where is the first Rescuers movie, the '77 Rescuers movie at? I think I prefer the Fox and the Hound. It just seems a little more consistent, like. This like I mean I guess this one is working so far outside of the Disney box. There's a f- there's a few segments where maybe they don't quite know what they're doing because they're in new territory, which is exciting. But Fox and the Hound is um, the machine was falling apart as far as their animation department, but it was still churning out pretty good stuff, right? I don't know what what's your take. Uh, do you have a fa- do you have a favorite now and in, in the one that's kind of moved up in your book the most? Probably I think maybe my favorite was always Robin Hood, and it has remained to be robin hood but rescuers down under like i mentioned was it was like implanted in my brain somewhere where i have to put it in very high rating i have to give it at least a seven or an eight even though re-watching it i don't know if it deserves any of that by merit alone um for for whatever reason it's like it just fits into like a a groove that's been etched into my skull somehow yeah i guess my actual answer is i like robin hood a lot but um just the credit sequence from that, the opening credits. I think that's where I was like, "Whoa, this that is that one!" Great. And the the whistle stop song, like that'll just never not be my favorite Disney song, even though it's just not necessarily <laughs> lyrics. It's just like a guy, you know, improvising. It's kind of like a scat man. <laughs> yeah, just up to this point, I'm not willing to uh, abandon my pink elephants. I guess is what I'm saying. So I'm trying to figure out which one moved up the most in my book. <laughs> but they get an homage, right? They get an homage in. Uh, well, almost every movie there, I, I almost consider the drunk elephants, the real hidden Mickey. Cause I mean, the <laughs> hidden Mickey, everyone knows about the hidden Mickey, but whenever you see that elephant pop up, uh, I feel like that's kind of the, the real version of it. But in, in, uh, Robin hood, they are, I guess, sort of like soldiers or something. They're like, they're like the, the foot clan of, uh, the villains in that movie. You don't really see them often. I think it's just in the credits and in like one or two scenes. Yeah. And like the, the Aristocats, I, I, that's pretty low on my list as far as like how I like it. But you know, that weird, again, the weird psychedelic scene from the early seventies, like definitely won me over. So that segment, I was like, okay, we're like 50 minutes into this movie and now I'm on fire. That's good. You know, that at least the fire lit eventually. So. And I, and I do have a note here that, 
this uh this movie is one in a long line of that kidnapping theme and i do think there's something to this there's something to uh children being left without their parents and the fact that disney movies are typically used to leave a child without its parents right <laughs> you, you put the mo- the movie in and you go outside or you go and like do things and it becomes the the sort of like stand-in parent right like it becomes this artificial sort of mechanical parent that babysits for a little while but this this dates back at least to pinocchio if not earlier but pinocchio is pretty much about a fake kid being stolen but then you've got peter pan where multiple kids get stolen you've got the rescuers and the rescuers sequel uh which i did watch as extra credit in case you want to get into the sequel but both of those are about a kid literally being kidnapped um monsters inc you've got a kid being kidnapped technically tangled rapunzel gets kidnapped so all of these ongoing themes were either your parents die or you were already an orphan at the beginning of the movie or you've you're with your parents and then you get kidnapped from your parents it's just such an interesting very specific yeah. uh you know sort of theme to just keep harping back to over and over even 101 dalmatians is um you know people get dogs as proxy kids and the dogs get kidnapped so <laughs> well I, I, the, the point i was i mean if you start extending that into the animal kingdom now you can make an argument that every disney movie ever is pretty much about either getting kidnapped or orphaned or, or something along those lines because now you can bring bambi into the mix but all those examples i just gave were all human children being kidnapped without having to like bend or weave or include other movies like once you extend that to the animal kingdom bam like every disney movie yeah yeah that pretty much works so i i guess that's i guess that's just a way to you know <laughs> still what fear in the children which you could see as oh we're entertaining them and shocking them or we're traumatizing them a bit it's you know sometimes hard to tell <laughs> getting back to mr uh, Toad, honestly to... i think it's like a cheat code man it's like uh i mean dating myself with a game genie reference but it it's like story storytellers at a certain point just realize oh there's these very specific themes that we can hark on to and it's almost like a platonic solid or or like a sacred geometry, except it's like, oh, if you just do these things, you play a sad violin and a slow piano, um, you know, very softly, and then say some that some children's like parents died or that they're being taken away from their children or whatever, you can just evoke an emotional response and a connection. And it doesn't even have to be a good storyline necessarily. If you can just play those things in the right order and the right sequence, it's almost like anyone with really good rhetoric can convince you of things that don't exist or that nobody else cares about just through the way that they present it. So I've, I feel like Disney almost uh, like came up on this thing, realized it worked great. And they're just like, let's just keep flexing that muscle over and over again. And they don't necessarily ever have to change the script. I mean, all the way up to the lion King and beyond, right? It's kind of that same emotional uh, setup. And I don't, I don't know if they need to change it. Cause it, I think I also liken it to, certain commercials where they know they've got a 30 second format and you always want to show the company logo within the last two to three seconds of whatever your commercial length is. And you always kind of build up to it and then you bam, you throw this logo out and that's usually when the music fades out or dies down or lowers its tempo or becomes kind of less aggressive because they've already embedded all of that information. And now they want you to like be calm, relax. And then your takeaway is this like soothing logo that brought you out of the chaos 
And I just think it's that same concept here where Disney presents that chaos and it's like, and here's the solution and here's the music and here's this, this formulaic way. I'm sitting here trying to work out their films and wondering if that's why, because this is the crop of animators where they did get in um, like Tim Burton and Don Bluth and uh, Bluth had been around a bit by this point. I think this is uh, Rescuers is where he actually got to start like doing proper directing, like animation directing. But he's still relatively new to the game at this point. Uh, Bert, I guess John Lasseter hangs around, but in a kind of weird roundabout way. But maybe they were trying to, you know, screw with the formula and it just didn't take. And yeah, I, I could definitely see that. I could definitely see that with Tim Burton. I mean, that's kind of his his like, you know, narrative, right? That he couldn't fit there and makes weird animated Frankenweenie or whatever, right? I mean, or maybe that just like that theme of being separated from the parents just took like a very dark note into Tim Burton's psyche as he, he that pushed could be that it narrative. Because yeah, <laughs> you got your, not anime, but yeah, Edward Scissorhands or something, I guess has sort of that vibe. Um, it definitely is that vibe, man. It's, it's he's Pinocchio. He's Pinocchio at hundred percent. And he's, and he's also kind of like a child, at least mentally, even though he looks like, I guess in the movie, he looks like he's like 17 or whatever. I don't know how old Johnny Depp was at that point. But he acts like a five-year-old, you know? He's got the emotional response of a five-year-old. Yeah, so I guess it's just, I guess in his case, it was more just like the aesthetic he was looking for than uh, something else. Oh, I had a good point I was going to make, but it, it just left my head. Oh, well. Oh, uh, another trope. Uh, the, the, the happy drunk was definitely... Those buttons were pressed pretty <laughs> hard in this movie where you're just, ah, that... Uh, what, what animal is he? Are, are drunk in this one. I just wrote drunk paw. Is he another mice? Anyway, yeah. With all the moonshine, just pouring it into people. Again, that's like North by Northwest. They poured a bottle of bourbon into me, you know? We got this this mouse just pouring bottles into everybody. <laughs> You're making an outstanding case for this North by Northwest um, sort of synchronism. Didn't even come up until we started... You know, uh, my only thing in the notes is fine building. They've got that UN and I just watched North by the Northwest, but it's this podcast where I'm kind of like tying it together a little bit more. Um, even the the uh, the mouse squad or whatever it's called. Uh, I mean, that's a little bit like your CIA because that's North by Northwest is the first or close to the first film reference to the CIA. So here we have our underground mouse society. We also have another reoccurring Disney trope. Another of my favorites is the uh, the the backwoods hillbilly Appalachian redneck. Uh, yeah. And in this one, it's uh, oh god, what's in Dead Eye? And this one, it's Dead Eye, who was the same voice as Lafayette in The Aristocrats, the dog, which was my. I've, this guy, I had to look up his name, George Smith Lindsay, uh, one of my favorite sort of animated voices by far. And yeah, yeah. So that definitely works out in this one. Um, man, I lost my train of thought again. That's too bad. Uh, what is your favorite character in this one? I, I guess this one does have a lot of like kind of standout characters. Again, having notable voice actors. Well, no, notable actors. I guess they're not. This is the case where getting actors to do voice acting kind of works, I think. Probably because they just base the characters on whoever was doing it. 
So, so I have to separate the voice actors from the characters of the movie because otherwise it's unfair. I'll just keep vo- voting for like my favorite voice actors, which probably would have been Deadeye. Um, but my favorite character for sure is Madame Medusa. There's no way that she's not the star of this entire movie. I, I could care less about the mice in the UN. I think the UN should be completely dismantled. But uh, Madame Medusa would be just the type of person that, that could dismantle a mouse-driven UN. So I'm kind of on her side, <laughs> not just in the theme of the movie, but I think she has that that crazy look in her eye where I like I want to follow her story. I don't want to I don't want to know about the UN and like what these mice do in a day. I want to know what Madame Medusa does on like a normal day and like a, a day that goes good for her when her nefarious plans work out. Like I would absolutely love to see a Cruella movie, but you know, called Medusa or something on, <laughs> on this lady. Oh, well, I don't know. Con- considering her um, living situation, I'm going to guess a few of her plans haven't gone so well. <laughs> But hey, that could be fun to watch as well, you know? <laughs> no problem with that. Now, yeah, I guess I it did just bug me how close she was to Cruella a little bit. Otherwise, yes, definitely good stuff there. Well, they they almost used Cruella DeVille's character itself on this movie, or at least certain animated frames from that. So this this was almost gonna be a Baloo little John situation. Um, but I bl- they they ended up not going that direction, but obviously some of that DNA was still left over, even though they didn't necessarily repeat the exact same frames. There there's so much of Cruella Deville. I think like the high cheekbones and that like kind of like scully look in a way. But I also feel that this one's way like if you had to choose who you were being pursued by, it would probably, at least for me, I would rather be pursued by Cruella Deville because then you just got to outsmart her stupid goons. She doesn't get her hands dirty. This lady gets her hands dirty, and her goons are freaking crocodiles. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so she's more terrifying, right? I um, think so. Yeah this this was definitely a terrifying uh, sort of uh, villain to be pursued by. I, I can't think of a lot of other disney villains that felt as real as this lady did to me all the other ones have almost like a fantasy quality to them but this one felt like someone you might actually find in the bayou that might chase you right right uh but let's think about water just a little bit as well we have kind of our maelstrom at the end and i'm seeing it you know working out that is a bit of a another disney trope because we got that sort of thing in pinocchio as well like the water disaster ending the film basically um i just like the yeah, idea this of a is De- devil's bayou um so there's there's direct connotations again to like the actual dark lord right it's it's not subtle backhanded references they just mention devil in this um which again like cruella deville which you didn't catch up on until we watched it recently but that theme of saying like this character is an embodiment of the actual devil. Like this is the Christian devil to be worried about that's infused with this character. Devil comes in many forms. I guess that's what they're going at. <laughs> now, this is based on a series of novels that I was relatively unfamiliar with. I, I didn't really know where this came from. I'm, I'm going to guess you probably have uh, two or three notes on that. <laughs> uh, I didn't actually look as much into the original story of the rescuers here. I do have, I have a couple, um, 
Actually, I have a note that says to do <laughs> about oh. <laughs> more of the backstory on this one. I I was trying to find specifically any kind of like occult influence and like mythology that might have gotten baked into it. I didn't find any from the original source material. I definitely found way more for the resulting animation. Okay, we well, take that route. What do you have? Well, I mean, I I I can't see this lady riding the two crocodiles and representing like the ultimate evil, and not just think of the the book of the dead and also all of the different i believe it was sobe um or sobek who was the god of the underworld who had the crocodile head and i felt like that that maybe this lady was sort of a recreation of sobek okay yeah my note was just alligator water skiing is hardcore so <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I definitely stuck out in my mind but um and the going underground stuff. I, I guess we should talk about that a little bit. Uh, Penny being the only person small enough to fit in this hole to search for the MacGuffin of the movie, uh, being being our diamond. And I was like, uh, maybe you got something. I was like, okay, they're dropping the little girl and down into a, a deep, dark hole uh, every day, which she doesn't want to go in. And then, yeah. Well, I mean, think about Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, where it's, it's that similar story where there's a human the human intellect is sending the animal world or it's like lower passions i guess down into the darkness to uncover gems and bring them back up into the human consciousness so i mean on, on that very loose sort of uh structure which again we went over in the the, the snowing the seven dwarves where the seven dwarves represent these kind of like earth elementals and that the earth has this sacred knowledge that needs to be uncovered by humanity, but humanity just kind of uses the animal kingdom and like the lower, you know, beasts to like take their knowledge and elevate it. So I, I feel like this is uh, a deeper maybe symbol than they were going for, but it's, it's absolutely a recurring theme that you keep seeing whenever I see someone uncovering a gem from underground and bringing it up to the superior human, it just feels like a retelling of that same sort of thread. Tell me the dwarves are dead. She's got to pull it out of a skull. Well, the, the dwarf, <laughs> the dwarves are only dead until they meet, meet again. human intellect the hu yeah. the that so that's what's i mean that one's really fascinating to me because it's the human intellect which gives them life like they get just through osmosis almost like the spirit is infectious so the spirit of humanity infects this like dead decayed inanimate objects around it and it in, and it kind of like inspires them through the spirit of humanity and therefore it's it's not as much humans like sending these gnomes or these creatures or these mice down into the earth to grab knowledge it's like they want to have more of this consciousness and in order to do that they want to like help humans I'm, I'm going a little bit on a, on a tangent there but i feel <laughs> that's a theme like if you look at that as the theme of all these disney movies specifically the ones where humans are interacting with the animal kingdom um, I feel like that's very close to all this. I mean, that's the question I was asking you because I was like, okay, well, this happens and it really feels like something there. So there we go. <laughs> and and if you notice too, all of the, well, not all, but, but most of the villains in a lot of these movies don't necessarily communicate with the animals the same way that the good protagonists uh, communicate with animals. In this case, she kind of has command over them. And in some movies they like will talk to, 
the animals that they control over, but it never necessarily feels that there's this clear two-way communication. Whereas in a lot of the other movies, it's, it's usually this golden child, which kind of represents like the green man um, that has this direct connection with nature and that hasn't severed their connection with nature yet. So they've got this two-way feedback loop and that that alone is their connection with nature is what makes them this like moral high entity that needs to beat out all of the evil. Cause usually the evil are the ones that are like driving the cars and they're wearing jewelry and they've kind of like become humanized, right? They've embraced modern society. That's, that's also, especially as Walt starts going to the wayside, right? All of a sudden the evil of the Disney movies starts to become humans and humanity and human technology and evolution which i feel was not necessarily where walt would have driven that if he was in the driver's seat the entire time especially how he wanted to direct you know epcot and kind of embrace technology whereas all the people working under him and the, and the writers and the artists they kind of were steering it in the opposite direction yeah um i was i was started thinking like you know it wasn't disney in 1977 but now it is in uh star wars right uh kind of like the way you generally tell the heroes and the villains like uh, on a, a more subtle level is um are they nice to droids or not uh-oh that's <laughs> not good for me because i'm i'm an asshole to chat gpt is <laughs> oh uh, uh, well we're t- or i'm talking like little droids that roll around and make beeping noises because the heroes can generally understand the droids without too much trouble. Yeah, but uh, it feels so much easier to be to be nice to a small, cute little aesthetic thing when it's really no different than just an algorithm that's running in a cloud somewhere, right? It's almost harder to be nice to the abstract version of it. Yeah, but for the most part, the uh, you know, the Imperials like barely acknowledge the existence of the droids around them, whereas our heroes, you know, they have they have to interact with C3PO, which that's is, just propaganda, man. Don't get me started on that, but that's propaganda. Um, you know, I don't think that the the rebels I think the rebels shot first. I've definitely fallen to that camp. Yeah. And I think that every single Star Wars movie has just been propaganda to change the narrative. It's all Rebel Alliance made propaganda. It's the Empire was actually for the good of everybody, and the Rebel Alliance <laughs> is is represents chaos in a system that doesn't need chaos. Ah, uh, so in this in this case, you're supporting the Empire. Okay, that's that's cool. <laughs> I don't know if it's as much supporting the Empire as just denying the benevolence of the the rebels. But but even, actually, that still works with my little metaphor because if it's rebel propaganda, that's the trope they're putting into the rebel propaganda <laughs> that the rebels are nice to draw. Uh, the, the classic reverse not. reverse trope. <laughs> the reverse reverse trope. It still kind of it fits because you still have, uh, in that case, you have artists from the fake world making movies. Hmm. I I don't even know what that sentence means. Okay, <laughs> should probably wrap a bow on that Star Wars tangent. Let's talk about the albatross. Uh, they apparently went with the albatross because it lands awkwardly, and they thought that would be funny. But then, you know, notoriously, the albatross is the uh, at sea symbol of like death, right? Again, I mean, there's un- there's so many connections to mythology of death in this movie and every Disney movie. Yeah, because what is it? If you're on land, it's a vulture. If you're at sea, it's an albatross. It's that that bad portent. I don't know if albatrosses eat corpses what? or anything, but <laughs> well, th- th- that actually repeats a little bit in the the sequel as well, where the the main sort of I don't know if you want to call it a guffin, but like the the thing that they're after is this great golden eagle, and that great golden eagle also 
Um, it was what you call a kleptoparasite, which I believe albatrosses are as well. It's where you make it part of your feeding strategy to steal food from other animals. Right. Okay. Yeah, I actually do want to kind of give that movie its um its full due when we get to it because that okay uh, down under is the the direct second Disney Renaissance movie, so it's the direct follow up to Little Mermaid, I guess, uh, Disney narrative wise. So I thought, and and you know, at that time, the only sequel they had made, so it might be interesting to hit that on its own. Oh, also, I didn't know that. I didn't know you, that at all. You've got it memorized. I've never seen it, so that should be a a fun way to approach it. <laughs> Uh, let me see. I did like, oh, getting back to the music just a little bit. I did definitely like the glam disco spy music. That that was some 70s stuff that was up my alley for sure. Uh, more than the, the flying around to AOR rock. <laughs> AOR. Yeah, I got that right. Okay. And I just wanted to mention too, that I think my, my close second for favorite are probably Brutus and Nero, but also just because Brutus and Nero being those two crocodiles, I think they probably hold the most symbolism, but also they're named after, you know, the the Romans, um, which I don't know. I, I, I feel like anytime Disney makes a direct connection to a historical entity, again, that's kind of tapping into, I want to be woo-woo about it, but like an energy center, right? So that you tap into these names and these characters that have gravitas built in and they already kind of infer things that are way deeper than the character that they're portraying. I think that's just like another classic Disney spell where it almost makes all of their characters feel so much more, um, you know, influential, like, like even Madame Medusa, right. Harkening, just naming her after actual Medusa, not being sly or subtle about it or making it rhyme with Medusa, but actually naming her Medusa. Um, you know, this, this woman with, reptiles on her head that now rides reptiles uh i i feel like it's not just coincidence like there's these themes that get baked in for very specific reasons oh okay yeah that's what makes her reptiles that she water skis on okay i was honestly just like because they animated rolls of fat and i was like is that supposed to turn you into stone maybe that's it (laughs) (laughs) which she was portly yeah 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 well i she i guess she just seemed like skanky like Cruella's kind of skanky, but Medusa is super. Like this is like the skankiest. Well, Cruella's too old to be really skanky. I think mm. she's, you know, and and she she's too much of a skeleton. Like she's she's bypassed gender entirely. She's kind of like elevated beyond it and just embraced pure evil, which is probably more of like a hermaphroditic Baphomet sort of style, right? Like she's got all the parts and none of the parts. Um, but, but this lady sounds like the lady that gives you attention at too much attention at city walk you know <laughs> yeah that's a great way of putting it <laughs> or i mean you know like on on um uh, mardi gras or something this like she's definitely getting beads right madame medusa's getting beads in mardi gras <laughs> <laughs> oh okay that's why she lives in the bayou so she can you know ride on over for mardi gras got it okay <laughs> it, it all connects man i think there's so many connections there so what what do you think about the 70s Disney vibe? I'm kind of talking the parks too a little bit. It's I, I feel like 70s Disney is like the funkiest Disney. Like like I mean, like you said as far as story and stuff, there's definitely the tropes are continuing and the formulas are continuing. But as far as like the movies feel a little weird, 
the park stuff, you know, is a little weird. Um, fun. I, I do love this stuff. Uh, this I think seventies is... were almost like Disney's nightmare. Walt Walt Disney's nightmare. And this is subjective, obviously, but my whole understanding of Disney as a living entity is that it wants to live in a timeless Pleasantville. It would prefer to live in like like a, a perpetual world of Lassie and Leave it to Beaver and sort of in that kind of an atmosphere. And you can more or less draw a lot of correlations in the 40s, the 50s, even the 60s to where that golden era America existed. The 70s, though, it was like you couldn't hide it. Like no matter what business you were being a patron of, of a bank or a restaurant, like the 70s and everyone wearing bell bottoms and the huge mutton chops and and like the dark, you know, aviator sunglasses, it just it persisted throughout. And then I think in 80s and even 90s, it's like the the 80s um, sort of Wall Street and, you know, the stuffy suits came back into the era again. So it's a lot easier to portray that timeless sort of sense of just pure American progression in almost every decade outside of the seventies. So with, with that feeling of like Disney wants to always be timeless seventies is such a hard um, period of time to not let the seventies just like ooze through every aesthetic that presents it from the music to the artwork to like the story, everything. I, I know I've mentioned it, on this podcast before but the uh, mickey mouse review which was in disney world at the magic kingdom in the 70s and uh, ported over to tokyo disney where it lasted until something like 2010 so the last time i i went to it was maybe 2008 but the thing is they have the how close did they keep the form it was exactly the same thing just in japanese (laughs) (laughs) uh but they had the pre-show film and it I, I was kind of asking because it has my my perfect 70s Disney moment. Uh, it has a little pre-show where I think they show animation clips of some of the characters you're about to see animatronics of. But it, it just ends with um, like this disco funk thing with a bunch of kids in um, character suits, like just dancing out of the castle. So uh, that, for me, that kind of describes Disney 70s. It feels so wrong, but it, it's so it, it, it's, it weirdly works at the same time. <laughs> so that's it for me. Uh now the place I would like to time travel to in 1977 is is not to see the rescuers, not for the premiere of Star Wars. Uh, that would be to go see the short-lived world of Sidamarty Croft, which was in Atlanta for about six months. Are you familiar with this one? What is this? Oh, this is you know Sid Marty Croft, right? Lidsville, HR Puffin stuff. Uh, okay, I so I know HR Puffin stuff, but I never watched. I mean, I, I've seen it on like YouTube, but I definitely did not watch it as a kid. I only learned about it after college and military. Okay, make make a note now to just watch one episode of Lidsville and see where that takes you. What is it, Lidsville? <laughs> Lidsville, like a like a lid of weed, man. <laughs> but it's about hats, of course. It's lid, so <laughs> like a, a, a lid of weed was also a very seventies phrase, right? Right, right. So it's funny that they did. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Sid and Marty Croft, especially in the 70s, is basically like if funky 70s Disney had like taken way too much acid and just, you know, stared at an orange for like two weeks, you know? <laughs> so, so like uh, the Salvador Dali contribution to Fantasia. Yeah. So the world of Sid and Marty Croft is in, um, uh, what I forget the name of the building, but it's the one now it's CNN Center, right? 
So this weird psychedelic indoor amusement park is in exactly the same spot that is now CNN World Headquarters. So you'd ride up the escalator that takes you up however many floors and you just go down and there'd be all these weird experiences. You get in a ball and it's supposed to like you're riding around in a pinball machine, just weird stuff. But yeah, it, it, downtown Atlanta was considered extremely dangerous in 1977 and nobody wanted to go and the place shuttered after six months. But, um, <laughs> you know, like when I was a kid, so now it's like 1982 or something, 1983, um, you know, my, my dad would would take me down to see like Sesame street live. Right. And they had converted a couple of places from this into like play areas. So I definitely have distinct memories of like playing on like ridiculously psychedelic playgrounds. And apparently at CNN, like if they renovate, sometimes they'll like you take the wallpaper off and they'll find like insane 70s psychedelic patterns behind it that were from the park. <laughs> so yeah, just, uh, uh, I guess, I guess, yeah, there is there is fun to the seventies funkiness, and Fox and the Hound definitely is has shed itself of most of that, right? Where the Rescuers has it, Robin Hood has it for sure. Um, well, here, here's the <laughs> thing: is that if you lean into the backwoods hillbilly, you can be seventies and also be timeless, right? Because the seventies country music, um, unless it, it, you like really lean into like Gordon Lightfoot's kind of disco ish songs, but outside of that, I mean. I, I think that might also be part of the reason why Disney was able to lean in. Like it's either classical music or country music for a lot of those earlier movies. I believe this is the year uh, Mickey Mouse Disco comes out. Might have been a few years later, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> there there's some really bizarre '80s, especially '80s Disney's album. Uh, oh, I remember Disney. the uh, there was a Disney uh, like aerobics um, mouser size. Yeah, mouser size. Oh man, I I, I hated it and loved it. I, I I loved it because it marked the beginning of some of the Disney programming that was about to follow it. But man, it was just such a weird, <laughs> even as a kid, it was a weird thing to see happen. Splash Dance. That's a very bizarre album. That's worth hearing. Um, I, I think I think that's the one where it came out in 83, 84. So yeah, funky Disney was the 80s for music, I think. Um, but basically, they, they, they had hired synthesizer enthusiasts to make it and they were able to get their hands on like the very first like production models of the uh, Yamaha DX7, the the famous '80s digital synthesizer. Mm -hmm. I, I'm an analog guy, but it's really fun to hear people like just working out this iconic synthesizer for the first time, even if it's on kind of a derpy Disney album. Which is uh, you know very, it's kind of a fun combination of derpy Disney album and um synth innovations. So I mean, you know, Tomorrowland and uh, the the electric parade and all that i mean that, that's cool electronic stuff <laughs> it's funny when you when you bring up the dx7 and you mention you're an analog guy because the dx7 is such an old piece of digital equipment that it's almost in it's almost closer to the analog world than it is to the digital world at least in in just chronology <laughs> well i have a, i like i have a emulation of that on my ipad i was like well there's not mm -hmm. really a reason to get a hand on dx dx7 because it's i mean i'm sure there's some reason but it's digital anyway so who cares i do it on my ipad right <laughs> if you don't have any space and you just need to fill it up with heavy bulky objects then yeah well since i do like analogs i also have a mini moog <laughs> and a juno 60 and those do take up a lot of space <laughs> so I, don't need I mean the, the next time you just get a full-on mellotron right and then you have to like play maintenance on all the tapes constantly and all the motors <laughs>
Yeah, I don't know why I still have a functioning Juno 60. It worked. Uh, there's a little bit of a hissy sound. That's kind of cool because it's analog. So, but it, yeah, it's still fully functioning. So, pretty amazing. <laughs> uh, anyway, well, and, and speaking of analog and digital, I just want to mention there's another note on this movie was the end of the Disney Xerox phase, apparently, even though this one looked a little bit sharper that same criticism that i that i brought up when we were watching 101 dalmatians where you could almost see like the xerox like specks of dust that got copied when they were you know doing different panels uh, this was i think the last time that they used that specific way of doing animation and um we'll, we'll talk about again when we do rescuers down under but that was the first movie they used the uh, caps system on the, you know the and first that the animation and the the sequel was amazing like it was truly spectacular in my opinion the movie maybe not as good as the the animation in the movie yeah so i mean that, there's a case of making digital work for you right the uh you still got the artist doing the art thing but we're just going to lay on the 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 ink and paint with uh, a computer i guess is that that's basically how it works if i'm correct uh they did some of i mean when you say lay it on with uh, with like the computer, it's like they're still doing all of it. It just happens to be instead of scanning it digitally and that pixel being a representation of like an actual, you know, paint that was on the cell. Now they just put the pixel in digitally. So but it's still like very much hand drawn in that same kind of way. Like they're still using a stylus. They might just not be dipping it into the paint and putting it onto the cell, but the, every other step of that process is very similar. But the one that makes the sequel stand out, which we'll do a whole episode on. I'm happy about because that one is, is amazing, but that was also about like this digital parallax um, sort of like camera movement. There was a lot of three dimensional camera movement and there was lots of really cool, sort of like repeating textures that gave it all sorts of like 3d effects that you hadn't really seen before that that wouldn't have been possible with the xerox because even xerox was just a much more convenient way of still more or less doing kind of like hand-drawn cell-by-cell animation right right so i mean you know that there's there's no reason to just like take a poop on digital right it's just I guess it's you know in 2023. I love just... digital. Like I have no complaints about digital. Although it 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 has a break in this continuity where we mentioned that when you've got a team of artists, you know, hundreds of artists that are just drawing the exact same sigils over and over, Mickey Mouse over and over and over for months and months on end, they're actually manifesting you know, some sort of like energy, I guess. Like they're, they're literally taking what sunlight that goes into the plants and the animals that we then consume and then use all that energy to just like draw a mouse thousands of times. That sort of changes once you get into the digital realm, because now you don't have hundreds of artists, like specifically drawing it in the same way that they did. Now it's almost like rearranging in a, in a abstract sense. I, I, I wonder I... if that takes away from it at all. Yeah, I guess what I don't like quite as much, and and I'm not I'm I'm, I'm going to leave Disney out of this because they generally don't do it. But uh, in a lot of live action movies, you know the the big bad is just the big brown amorphous blob at the end of most movies. Now DC Universe for sure has that. Um, I feel like Star Wars and MCU doesn't do it too much. I, I can give my review, my spoiler free review of Guardians Three if you'd like. Like, let's go for it. Okay. Guardians, Apparently. Rescuers, it's kind of the same genre. Yeah, that's right. 
So apparently I took a 40 minute nap. <laughs> I, I had walked like 30 kilometers that day and, and it just had a, a drink. So that, that's part of the reason. Uh, so it might not be the movie's fault, but I fell asleep. For How long was the movie? Like that's an important half, factor. Yeah, like two and a half hours. That's part of the Well, there why. you go, right? I mean, consistently, the, the better of these movies so far are usually when they, they clock in at under 90 minutes, preferably not more than 70 minutes. But Yeah, I mean, I watched several Hitchcock films. I watched several Buster Keaton films in the past week, too. Didn't fall asleep for those. So uh, anyway, so the plot that I got from this movie, because the 40 minutes I fell asleep in was the, the loud noises part, right? With plot twists and loud noises and action. So I basically slept through the whole climax, <laughs> I guess. So what I saw was a bunch of um, broken, depressed people and aliens, I guess. And um, and by the end, they've sort of resolved things, but it's melancholy and bittersweet. So what I saw was kind of like an Igmar Bergman film because I missed all the action. <laughs> but uh, I, I don't really have... I, you know, I haven't seen an MCU film since Doctor Strange last year. I was just like, okay, Guardians 3, let, let's give it a shot. And I'm like, no, nope, still, still not back in on this. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean... Technically, those are all Disney movies now. So I know that's why I'm bringing bringing it up because uh, I, I well, I slept through that part, I guess, but I don't think they have big brown blobs as their villain usually. So, um, you know, Star Wars mostly avoids that. Uh, you know, Return of the Hut. Yeah, you know, that's an awesome big brown blob. And I was going to bring up the Rancor under Jabba as being uh, an awesome big brown blob, but that's also a, a fantastic model. And job is a well original job. I mean, Chernobog is kind of a big black blob. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But you can picture Chernobog in your head right now. Try and picture the the big bad from you know like like Shazam or something. You know, <laughs> and I love Shazam, but it was just like it was yeah. The climax was just like a bunch of CGI mess. That's what I don't like. I do like something like you like mentioned. Twister, right? Like the enemy is a tornado. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's kind of hard to work out. I can picture tornado too, but uh, Justice League definitely cannot picture the the bat the big bad at the end of that. So that that's I guess where the computers. Well, the, I've the, I've got on this rant on I don't think on this podcast, but on on other podcasts, whenever the Marvel versus DC thing comes up, and my my go to explanation, which I really love, and I don't think I'm completely copying this from a book called. Um, all of our heroes were spandex, something, something like those lines, but it kind of describes how DC characters are less relatable to some people because a DC superhero gets their powers from another world. Like you can't be Aquaman or Superman because you don't get to come from outer space or you don't come from the loins of a literal God. So they're already kind of completely detached from the human experience in some ways. And almost every main DC storyline outside of Batman and, and other like humans that don't have supernatural abilities, but most of them, they're constantly trying to connect with humanity, but they're completely separate from it. Whereas Marvel movies and by proxy Disney, it usually starts with the human spirit and an actual human entity or in, you know, anthropomorphized humans as animals, you know, Bambi's technically a, a human that just has like an animal body more so than it's an animal. Um, but that the, the Marvel slash Disney aspect is that we can relate closer because it always starts with like a normal old rags to riches kind of story, or it starts with an actual person or a, a flawed human being. And then they gain their powers 
through a seemingly um, understandable process that either of us could go through, right? Like there's never a reality, even in your mind, where you get to become Superman because you can't like make yourself turn into a baby and then get reborn on Krypton and then come to Earth where now your normal abilities are seen as superhuman. But anyone can, you know, get gamma rays and turn into the Hulk, theoretically, or anyone can be kidnapped by the CIA and given an adamantium, you know, skeleton and claws that come out like Wolverine. But you can't do the same thing with the DC characters. So I I think that that might play into to like some of the the main difference that you might be pointing out between DC and Marvel. Some of it is like a deep archetype. That's why people like Spider-Man so much. You're only one radioactive spider bite away from being Spider-Man, right? And and he starts out as a as a nerdy kid that, you know, uh sexually frustrated nerdy kid and then he becomes kind of like this sex icon superhero that everyone, you know, girls want to be with him and guys want to be him. That's kind of Spider-Man in a way. He's funny, he's smart, as long he's as snarky, his mask he's is witty. On. As long as his mask is on, right? But it's the opposite where Superman has to turn into that mild, meek, you know, Clark Kent. He has to pretend to be the human. So I don't know. I, I, that's such a fascinating concept to me that that plays out really well. Again, Batman breaks that a little bit. Um, but also Batman, interestingly, came from the detective pulp fiction um, sort of aspect of DC. You know, literally detective comics where it wasn't about the the superhuman aspect. It, it's specifically when you get into like the superhero world of all of these. We well, has the superpower of money, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So how about the rescuers then? Like you said, you can anthropomorphize a little bit. And I said that really wrong, but uh, you can't be a mouse. Uh, but OK, maybe we can do the metaphor, but you can't be this small. Um, no one else could make it into that little hole to save Penny. Right. So. Uh, maybe I don't know. I mean, <laughs> in that in that hole, no, that hole particular, no. Yeah, no, but, I, but I, you I, can I, always send a lower a lower form to get a, a possession of high value, whether it's a person or whether it's a diamond. You know, so that that kind of archetype still exists. True. Now I, I was just wrapping around because you know this movie has a, a couple of quote unquote heroes. You know, kind of goofy ones, but yeah, they're heroes, right? So I guess. I don't know. They work in the UN building. Maybe, maybe they aren't. But <laughs> uh, what would you, what would you like the UN building to be? Uh, well, honestly, I think that the the current location is pretty apropos. And there's, uh, have you ever heard of the Lucius Trust? Which I believe is that the UN building where it was originally called the Lucifer Publishing Company, and they have a little meditation room and. Uh, that is like the most occult, direct on the nose thing ever. I'm pretty. I might. I might be making that up. I'm pretty sure it's in the UN building. So I think it's it's already where it needs to be. Okay, that's cool. No, I just it's, it, it is a very cool building. One of one of my favorites. <laughs> as far as looking at it, so that's why I like seeing it twice. And you know, this movie in North by Northwest. So yeah, I I would properly tell people to chase this with north by northwest just for some fun see if see what you can. it is so i looked it up the lucius trust is in the un building and it was founded by alice ann bailey who is deep into madame blavatsky and tibetan you know theosophy and all of this so i mean if if you want them if we can very easily tie the rescuers to the un and the un to the lucius trust company i mean man we just 
there is just nonstop occult symbolism, you know, steeped throughout everything related. But it's more about the UN than anything else. So Bernard and and um, what's your name? Bianca are br- well, the, bringers of light. Okay, they they are the bringers of light. They were their Lucifer, truly Lucifer from the UN that are trying to bring light into the the forces of death. Right, the Sobak, the the rulers of the the underworld. You know these evil kind of entities that represent death and you know darkness forever and they're the ones that are you know coming to rescue and save everybody and and kind of like prometheus in a little bit of a way where it's like part of it is unwitting you know yeah i i guess that may i mean well one okay that's pr- they probably weren't like consciously thinking i love the metaphor because i was about to say that's why they made you know bernard such a like not quite fit but you know sort of guy fish out of water in this situation but i I think that was more for the uh, comedy and drama (laughs) but it works is the point i mean i i guess there's so many subconscious choices artists can make too you know well he's way more sympathetic as being unwitting because if he were um you know if if he actually wanted to be on this mission i think he would be far less relatable and he would almost be annoying you know that like he's so full of himself and the fact that he's kind of getting dragged along and doesn't know what he's doing almost makes him endearing in a way right like there's so many things just uh in creations of movies because we're talking a caught disney the, the hidden things and some of it's intentional like the like the um the booby poster but then there's other things that would not be intentional but are still there and um, my personal experience case would be making music I remember writing some lyrics, making some songs around 2012 or 2013, right? And then around 2018, doing a whole lot of metaphysical reading stuff, listening to music again and being like, I'm explaining these concepts to myself 10 years ago before I knew about them. How does that work? And I know I wrote the lyrics myself, you know? So it's not like some some weird... Uh, conspiracy it's it's a conspiracy within myself, right? So Well, I, I mean, I think it's kind of like we all already know the the laws and the rules of everything. Like if you sit there and you, you move your hand around in the water and you see how the ripples move around, or you do that with like smoke or, you know, anything with that has like a fluid. And then you learn about the, you know, fluid mechanics later on. Well, it's, it's not like you didn't ever know that waves existed and like how they worked inherently just as a kid, like playing with water, but like once you understand the math behind it, which I definitely don't, but if you were to <laughs> understand the math behind it, it just gives you a little bit extra context. But I don't think for a lot of people, you might not necessarily learn anything new. You might just be able to be way more specific about the various moving parts of everything. And I think it's it's almost the same thing with like symbolism and trying to decode these occult movies where even as you watch it you get it like you you're decoding it actively because these symbols are being you know almost like digested and broken down by your psyche and kind of like you know turn into their little ancillary parts almost like a, a body breaking down a drug would but as you learn like you don't have to be a pharmacist to feel the effects of the drug but if you become a pharmacist you might understand oh this component is affecting this part of the body and so on so i think that there's a lot of that in in like just watching these movies right like knowing the backstory and who worked on it and the where they reuse the animation or even where they might have gotten an idea or changed an idea it doesn't change the ultimate end effect that the the movie has on you yeah on my other film podcast um where we look at more more live action stuff um something i found as we've done a few movies already 
is since I am looking at the movies a lot closer and looking to the production stuff, I can pretty much always see rear projection now. Like I've lost <laughs> that that bit of illusion. So uh, another scene in North by Northwest. Uh, let's take the train scene. You can tell when they're not talking and they're walking, it's on location in Chicago. Anytime they're talking, it's clearly rear projection because they needed to do that in the studio. And I, I just can't unsee it now. So that's, but I, I guess that's the, the price of being a film dork. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of those that you can pick up on too. Like, I mean, this one's even way more obvious, but whenever they're like driving and you see the obvious change where they're clearly not driving because it doesn't match up or it's just looping. And even as a, like, again, inherently as a kid, right? I think almost everyone notices that like, oh, the things that are painted a different way than the backdrop, than the matte painting, those things are going to move or that thing's going to be like animated at some point. Um, so it's like these little visual cues that you kind of pick up on and you detect that pattern and it almost feels like you're inside, you know, like, like you've got some kind of inside knowledge where it's like, oh, this new scene just showed up and that door is like a more vibrant color than the rest of the background. So I know that like someone's going to go through that door and then it happens and it's like, oh, I know how the, I know how the whole world works now. Although there are, there's, uh, we, we recently did Citizen Kane and, um, you know, that, that does have some, right. That does have some projection stuff where you can't really tell. So. You know. What about uh, Stanley Kubrick, uh, 2001, which was touted as like one of the 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 best fuck uses of at least the 3M projection technology? They did this insane thing where they had like these crystal beads or something, and yeah, the the 3M beads, yeah, that's what, it, yeah, and uh, yeah, so that does look really good, doesn't it? Um, that that's coming up on on that film podcast soon, so I'll I'll be revisiting it in the next two or. Three I hope months. you're going to get into the moon landing uh, after when you talk about that one too. Anyway, I guess I'm just going to turn that into plug. So yeah, the film one is Films and Filth. Uh, you can find that on any of your podcatchers. The Twilight Zone is Time Enough Podcast, where we talk about every episode of the Twilight Zone and beyond. And that can be supported along with this, the Occult Disney Podcast on Patreon at Podcastio Podcastius. And uh, we're on Twitter. Occult Disney's on Twitter. I think it's just Occult Disney Pod. And I do check it because the tweets I want to see actually come through that account. So uh, what's up in your world? You, you got something behind you to show. Well, I, I, I just want to replug uh, the amazing Rescuers Are the UN uh, connection here and the north by northwest um i think that that one is is worth pursuing so when we do another watch of the sequel we'll have to like lean even in even harder on you know that whole sort of aspect and i'll, I'll have to pull up the lucia's trust and work that in as well oh yeah and also sure. that this movie again is the one to point out when when people want to talk about like subjective or subversive you know, hidden messages and inappropriate things snuck into Disney movies. This is the one that you can't deny. There's all sorts of, um, you know, explanations that it happened in post-production and it happened after all the animation was already put together and they handed off to like another company that then, you know, basically uh, mass produces their reels or whatever, whatever the, the extra ancillary processes are They're like, those are the guys that did it. Um, but but the woman in the uh, the actual frame has never been identified. 
No one knows who or where they came from. And I have a feeling that Disney knows, but they probably went under NDA or something. Like someone got paid or maybe just assassinated. <laughs> maybe they just got taken out. Watts frozen head put it there. <laughs> <laughs> but but again, this this rescuers movie is the one to start with. All the other ones you have to rely on a little bit of flaky, subjective, very hard to dispute. Um you know aspects this one is the go-to so that forever this is one of my favorite occult very occult disney movies because it literally has you know inappropriate things hidden in it that were then taken out and then a whole mythology built around it and without this happening in this movie all the other rumors about the sexual innuendos in disney movies and posters and marketing i don't think any of them would have had the inertia and momentum needed without this movie setting it off so this is almost this is the fantasia of bringing to light a new like Disney mythology into the world. Although this was not of their own doing, perhaps. <laughs> so, sure. I don't know. That's that's my favorite part of it. Um, yeah, the book that I've got here is the Chosen One. I think I've plugged this a few different times before, but right now on Kickstarter, we're trying to get a hundred people to just sign up to be notified of the Chosen One issue two. So if you go to paranoidamerican.com. At the very top, there's a big link that's like, you know, chosen one issue two. Or if you're listening or watching this in the future, check out the chosen one issue two. It's out now. <laughs> it's not it's not at this moment, but it is in the future. Uh it's a it's a completely original comic, uh fully illustrated, and it's about conspiracy podcasters, kind of like what we're doing here, but they get supernatural abilities in a very Marvel way where um this this big radioactive cube comes from outer space technically it comes from the planet saturn delivered by uh, abraxas prime which is saturn's version of amazon and the uh the underlying without giving too much away but the underlying premise is that all of podcasts are actually run by secret societies and they only get into the upper echelon once you hit like a hundred thousand followers on certain platforms you get invited to go into inner earth and meet essentially joe rogan and all the top podcasters <laughs> and they kind of give you like the golden you know but they bestow upon you this new uh life of being like a podcaster god so it's about a bunch of podcasters that uncover this secret society and they try to infiltrate it and you know get it for themselves so yeah check that one out paranoidamerican.com it's got all kinds of cool conspiracy theory uh references all throughout it rock on yeah, hopefully we'll we'll get invited someday. <laughs> I'm gonna go pop onto my albatross and uh, fly off to work then. So, all right, until the next one. What's what's your cutoff for this one? What's the what's the parting line? Uh, that that maybe that was it. Except oh boy. I said something else. I can just say it again. Now I'm gonna get on my albatross and fly off to work. <laughs> it was better the second time for sure. Good. Try to chase the mirage beyond you Know that fate only pushes behind you If you're ever in doubt, turn off your mind You will see that the stream just moves on 
events sometimes cheat us unwell. These are the times on which we dwell. Just moves on 